Welcome to Witness. I'm Keaton. And I'm Laura. Today we're going to be sitting down uh, with my friend Leslie. She is the wife to Anthony, mom to Benjamin and Natalie and Amelia. And Leslie lives out on a farm in uh, Springfield called Humble Oak Acres. We've enjoyed some eggs. Did you eat your eggs from Humble Oak Acres? I did eat my eggs. I forgot that those were from our friend. That's awesome. Yes. They take care of all kinds of uh, creatures out there on their farm. And I think you're going to hear how much Leslie is a caretaker, uh, not just to her family, but to the world. We are going to talk to Leslie particularly about the life of uh, their son, Benjamin, who had a rare disease and lived for just a short time in their family. And we're going to talk to her about uh, counting days. And there is, uh, in the Psalms, there is this phrase that has been buried in my heart for a long time. It says, teach us to count our days so that we may gain a wise heart. And I love that idea that there's something about paying attention to the days as they go by um, that makes life matter just a little bit more or makes us more attentive to life. Have you ever had to to count down or count up? Have you ever just counted your days? Of course. Even that reminds me that at work, we have a list of maybe 30 different things that we're counting down towards. Not necessarily, they're not work activities, but they're just different events that are happening. Just there's something in having something to anticipate that makes the day more full. Um, but there's been good things that I've counted down for and there's been challenging things like surgeries and things of that nature. But regardless of what it is, it just really helps you see the day as full. Yes. And I think what's hard is that it, we think we can't really sustain that kind of attention. (laughs) You know, we, we, I met with Leslie just, it was just an ordinary day. Right. And I think what's weird is that life is this mix of ordinary days and extraordinary. And one of the things that um, suffering can kind of cre- make every day extraordinary, right? It makes you pay attention in a way you don't. Uh, there's a writer, Annie Dillard, who says this thing. Uh, she says that how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives, which is one of those things, if you just hear it, you think, well, duh, obvious. <laughs> but when it, it is this, it makes you pay attention to, uh, we have this idea of like the kind of life we want, but we don't always zoom in on what does that mean for this Friday? <laughs> you know, right. if I want this kind of life, what does that mean for yeah, how I spend a lot of, Friday? If I want this type of life, well, maybe I'll start doing that yeah. next week when I have more energy. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a, this is an old idea, but just how do you, how do you pay attention to your mortality? Not just like counting down till Christmas or counting down till a vacation mm-hmm. or, or counting down till a surgery or counting how many days you have left in life, but that just paying attention to our mortality. Uh, there's a Latin phrase, memento mori. Mm-hmm. Can you say that better mo, than me? Mo- <clears throat> nope. Um, <laughs> memento mori. That's, that's close. I think that's right. <laughs> uh, it, and it means remember you must die. And it's just this idea of waking up every day aware uh, that you only have so many days, right? And wh- how would you live with that? There's a lot of country songs about that mm-hmm. um, because it is a, a thing that I think we all wish we were we're living with. And so uh, we're gonna we're gonna learn how like counting days with Benjamin, how it transformed their family and their life. And I'm just so glad that Leslie uh, chose to sit with us and tell us the story. She's been trying to 
just tell Benjamin's story wherever and however she can so that more folks who are living with children with rare diseases feel like they have company and feel like they're not alone. So uh, we hope that you'll you'll listen in, but also if you know any families who this is part of their story, that you'll you'll let them listen in too. Here's Leslie. I wondered if you were one of those kids who dreamed of having kids. I absolutely was one of those <laughs> kids. Um, I think I always, as a little girl, was kind of excited for that. Um, I had such a fun childhood that I could, I could see that um, in the future for me as a mother. Um, and I specifically remember when I first started dating Anthony, we were in high school <clears throat> and very early into our 16 year old dating relationship, we were both like, oh, I, I want kids and I need, I just need to make sure that you want kids too. Not right now or anything, but <laughs> like, I just, was this I like need a to, second date I, conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're like sitting at having lunch in high school and we're like, no, this is a conversation we definitely need to to have right now. It's very important. Yeah. So, um, it was definitely always something that we we had planned on doing and were excited to to do when we were ready. Yeah. Were there any like maybe this is you and Anthony dreaming together, or maybe this is you as a little girl. Were there any specific like things that you imagined doing with your future kids? Was there anything like an image or just something that you you pictured being your, your future? I was always excited to kind of share in my own passions with them and hope that they would kind of pick up on those as well. And that'd be something we could share together. And I also really looked forward to continuing traditions. My family has a ton of fun and silly traditions. And so I was really excited to share that with a new generation and to kind of see them experience it for the first time. Um, from their eyes. So smashing pumpkins yes. every year, I know is yep. a big smashing pumpkins. Uh, <laughs> my, my daughter's favorite current tradition is actually Valentine's day. Cause we glue the conversation hearts on glasses and have red fruit punch and, um, spaghetti and meatballs and watch lady and the tramp. And it's just, their, <laughs> it's their absolute favorite holiday, like above Christmas. <laughs> yeah. So just creating moments yes. has been a big, a big yeah. thing in your family. Yeah. Yeah. Even the little ones are just, it's just really, really incredible to see that through a child's eyes uh, as you once did. Yeah. So going back to yourself has, has a young person, right? You and uh, Anthony, your husband, uh, those, those kids dreaming around the lunch table about kids someday, you end yes. up getting married. Yes. Uh, you end up because you've been dreaming about this, talking about this, uh, you end up pregnant. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Tell us about Benjamin. Tell us about when did you, like, I don't know if I know this part of the story. When did you guys know this pregnancy might not be a normal, healthy pregnancy? It actually was completely normal, healthy pregnancy. Um, labor was very straightforward. Um, and Benjamin actually passed all of his newborn screenings. Um, and we were sent home within like 24 hours of him being born, uh, with us having no idea that anything was wrong at all. Um, okay. we, 
started noticing um, a few things within like two weeks that we brought to our pediatrician's attention Um, because he was very, um, he cried a lot, like so much. And we had to be holding him constantly um, or he wouldn't be able to sleep. So I would, I would have to sit in a, in a chair in our living room and hold him every single second of the day to keep him from screaming and um, to allow him to get some sleep. And um, so we brought that all up to our pediatrician around two weeks old. Um, and we were told, you know, it's normal to have first-time parent fears. Um, it's probably just reflux. He's probably a colicky baby. Um, and so, you know, we were first-time parents. And, of course, we were concerned, but a doctor was telling us everything was fine. Right. Um, so we went back home. Um, and then around six weeks old is when he uh, started having his seizures which obviously as new parents um, was terrifying and we doubted ourselves a bit because it's a really scary conclusion to draw um, when looking at your child. And they started out pretty minor, um, but after one or two of those, um, we could see that they were ramping up in severity. So I took him to the pediatrician again um, and again, I was told that it was new mother nerves that it was reflux, that he was fine. Um, But on the way home from his appointment, he had another seizure. And this time he um, got very pale and stopped breathing for a moment. And that's when we went straight to the ER um, from that appointment directly. Yeah, there's got to be a lot of things going on inside of you. But like when you look back, do you feel frustration with the doctor? Do you feel fear? Are you just concerned about your child at that point? Like what's going through your mind? Um, I, I understand the doctor's perspective because the odds of a child having a seizure disorder, um, are pretty slim, but I do think that being a new parent, our concerns were brushed off very quickly. I do think we were one of those that kind of slipped through the cracks because we were young new parents yeah. But you're not a, I don't think of you as a super dramatic person. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm generally not. No, um, we've had very dramatic things happen in our right. lives, but um, I'm not generally one to blow things out of proportion. Right. No. Um, Anthony and I are both very science um, based as well. Um, so it was just unfortunately at the time we didn't have the confidence to assert ourselves over a doctor's perspective. You know, we were, yeah. we were young parents and how could we possibly know more than a doctor? Um, but Benjamin really taught us a lot in being confident as parents and to trust our gut. Yeah. So eventually you get somebody to pay attention to him. Um, you get some more pieces to the puzzle of who he is, right? Yes. So when do you finally get the diagnosis for him? So we had two separate inpatient stays when he was around six to eight weeks. Um, and in the second inpatient stay, uh, the um, neurometabolic doctor that was on call that day just said that um, they would like to submit his um, blood sample for a genome mapping um, to try to figure out what, what his diagnosis would be. Um, so we agreed to that, and it took about three months to get the diagnosis back. So he was about five months old um, when we got the diagnosis of Cockane syndrome. And tell us what you, like, that's a 
not a disease that a lot of people have any immediate association with, right? Had you heard of it before, this diagnosis? No, um, this diagnosis is incredibly rare. None of the doctors at Cincinnati Children's had ever seen it um, in their um, lifetime there. Oh, wow. Uh, and it is not something that is routinely screened for uh, in a, if you do a genetic panel uh, preconception planning is not on anybody's radar. It, it It's about uh, two in a million uh, diagnoses. Wow. And there's only a handful of families in the U.S. that have children with the, with the disease. Wow. So tell us what was life like with him? Like what, what happens after the diagnosis? First, what happens just in your brain, I'm wondering, because you are somebody who pictured having kids who probably didn't picture sitting in the office getting this diagnosis. Um, what happens to your life with him? What happens in your, in your own mind? Um, receiving the diagnosis was incredibly difficult. Um, we, I received it over the phone. Anthony wasn't home. So it was just me and Benjamin. Oh gosh. Um, and then my dad actually drove me to Anthony because we didn't want him to drive home from work after getting the, the information. Um, so we had a couple days to kind of mourn before we saw the doctors and were able to ask questions. Um, I remember when I received the diagnosis, they highly recommended that we not Google it. And hmm. of course we meet, I mean, what parent receives a diagnosis for their child and doesn't immediately right. Google it? Um, and there's not a lot of information on cocaine syndrome. And some of the first websites are extraordinarily clinical in their presentation. Um, so I just remember seeing over and over again, terminal, 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 and, um, it really started the grieving process for us at diagnosis. Um, so that the process of grieving Benjamin kind of started when he was still with us. Um, it just changed once he passed. Um, and I think that it's uh, a different type of grief, of course. Um, but it, it was helpful in some ways and unhelpful in others. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that is a thing that you can't quite understand, even with adults. Like I've been with adults who have been diagnosed with something that could be terminal and you're processing it while they're still at the table with you. Yes. You know, and that is a that is a strange space we all find ourselves in in some way. But this is with a child, right? So yes. this is a child who's still dependent on you for food, for movement, for standing up, for absolutely getting from place to place, like a hundred percent dependent on you. So just tell us what life with him was, was like some of the might be like in this ways, he was just like every other child and this was different. What was life with him like? So very early on, Anthony and I had a very long talk about how, um, even with his diagnosis, we wanted to prioritize the joy in spending time with Benjamin because he was such a joy to be around. He was so, so, so sweet. He loved to be cuddled and held. Um, and he really helped us to focus on the here and now and to enjoy every single little thing that happened throughout the day. Um, he was <clears throat> very atypical in development. So at the point that we lost him, I think he was still probably about six months old, um, socially and mentally, um, and physically he was, um, 
probably about the same. He had some regression. So there was a point where he was able to uh, sit up for a little bit, um, but we never got to uh, walking or crawling. He did He did get to rolling over for a while, and we were really proud of him for that. <laughs> um, but he had such a unique perspective on life that we really cherished because he, I mean, even with all the pain that he went through and all of the discomfort, uh, the simplest things could just make his day. I mean, just seeing the sunlight through the leaves on the trees and that contrast. Uh, um, he loved like Christmas lights and uh, he loved music, specifically Elvis. I love that. Yeah. Um, so it just really taught us to take a breather and to slow down uh, and to reframe our our goals for the future. Um which at first was difficult because we were, you know, planning on having a child that was going to walk and talk and go to school and, you know, have these future dreams and goals. And um, with Benjamin, we had to shrink that down considerably. But the beauty of that is that it freed us from social expectations like he should be walking by this age or he should be sitting up we could basically throw all of that away and just celebrate every win that he had regardless of you know where he was on the you know the pathway to development um and it it just made every single day so much more valuable uh because you weren't constantly pushing for the next goal you were enjoying where you were right then. Yeah, that was my, uh, you know, on my list of questions was kind of how did it change your life with him knowing your time would be short, um, which you've kind of answered there. But did he did they give you a life expectancy at all? Like, was there any math in your in your mind happening? That is something that Anthony and I very desperately wanted. You know, when you hear that your child has a limited uh, period of time with you, the first thing you want to know is how much. Um, and that is something that we asked at our first appointment with our genetic doctors. And um, they very uh, cautiously dodged that question. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was very frustrated by that. Um, but looking back, I'm very grateful for it because it's, I think if we had a, a number of weeks or months or years in our head, it would start a countdown. Mm -hmm. But instead, we counted up. And so we, we didn't set an expiration date on how much time we had with Benjamin. We just enjoyed every single day. I love that idea that I love the counting up instead of counting down. I think that's a t like, if imagine living that way. Yes. <laughs> like, do you feel like some of the things you learned about that being in the moment, um, have you seen those transfer? Like, have they stayed with you? Absolutely. I I think that Benjamin completely changed my perspective on life. Um, it really freed me from any of the, the societal pressures of this is what you should be doing at, by this age or this is how life should play out um, because you can't ignore the value of the now when your child is living in the now. So it it really transferred over and especially for our daughters. Um, yeah. So you have, we, you have twin daughters. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we've taken such a relaxed perspective on, you know, there's milestones that you will achieve, but it doesn't 
we don't need to compare it to anybody else. This is your timeline. And I think that that's really important for everybody in life to, to think about. Yeah. You don't have, you're not paying attention to all the percentiles. Yes. <laughs> that's yes. so much a part of parenting. It really is, is. so bizarre. And all the milestones, yeah. you know, you've got like this checklist of milestones that they should be doing by a certain age. And it gets really stressful. I mean, we were so stressed about those uh, when we had Benjamin, when he was really little and he didn't have his diagnosis yet um, because we were not hitting those. And as a parent, that scares you Mm -hmm. because you think, you know, what are we doing wrong? How, like, what can we do to help him? Um, So it just helped to realize that maybe you'll hit some of those milestones. Maybe you won't, but it doesn't really change your life. Um, you're, you're now by hitting those or checking those boxes. Yeah. I wonder if we have those, like, obviously there's, there's some value to them just in terms of detecting differences, right. But I also wonder if it's, we're so unsure about how to be humans, (laughs) that it's almost like we need the math of it sometimes just to have handles or to have something we can hold on to, to say, oh, I I accomplished this. Yeah. (laughs) I walked by the age of two or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's, I think it's, um, very soothing to parents who do have children who are hitting the milestones. And then it is a really useful tool to help children who maybe aren't hitting those milestones, give them some support if they need it. Um, or to, you know, maybe do another medical exam. Uh, I think, I think when it gets difficult though, is when people start comparing their kids' milestones to other kids that they know and making it some sort of competition um, when really they're supposed to be there just to make sure your child's doing okay and isn't is healthy yeah well and I think even if you think about it as adults there are metrics yes that are helpful yes and then there are metrics that just destroy us Um, absolutely yeah and we tend to put the focus on the wrong ones (laughs) yeah yeah I don't think we're good judges of which ones matter uh you talked about like growing in some confidence um through those early days of Benjamin, like trusting your instincts for what he needed. I wonder how did that play out? Has his uh, health declined? Has he got closer to death? Did you find yourself having to sort out what he needed? Like, did you find those instincts were there for what he needed in those days? We um, grew so closely uh, tuned in to Benjamin's needs and each challenge that we faced with him really helped us learn more about the medical system and gave us confidence in how to navigate the medical system and how to talk to the doctors. Um, We found that the more confidence we portrayed immediately when walking in the door, the more we were heard. Um, And we also learned very quickly that you kind of have to be difficult. Uh, You have to put up a fight. Otherwise, um, you get swept under the rug in the medical system. And um, in the medical field, they always say, uh, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Um, but Benjamin was a unicorn. Uh, he wasn't even a zebra. He was so, his body did not respond to anything in the normal way. Uh, okay. So we had this running list of things that we had to nitpick about at every admission. He couldn't be on IV fluids. He couldn't have these medications and these medications couldn't be mixed this way. And, um, so 
as time went by, we kind of considered ourselves maybe not experts on anything other than Benjamin, but very much experts on Benjamin. And our confidence very much grew from that. So that by the time we reached um, hospice and by the time we started talking about what our options were uh, with Benjamin, we felt confident in the choices that we made. Um, We put as much focus as humanly possible in keeping Benjamin's quality of life as high as possible. And we knew that um, we were both on the same team when it came to um, if it came to length of life versus quality of life, mm-hmm. that we would rather him have a shorter, happier, pain-free life um, than to to drag it out um, and maybe cause additional suffering for him. And that was such an easy choice for us to make that um, we felt pretty confident that we were able to um, – read him and know when that time was. That's so, I mean, I'm thinking that a part of us sitting down is to talk about words, right? It's to talk about what we say when people die or how we talk about people or the stories we tell. But so much of what you and Anthony were communicating with Benjamin had to be wordless. Yes. Right. It was watching his responses. It was watching his face, watching his body. Uh, I wonder if there was anything you learned from that just in having to almost read him and translate it was incredible how vocal Benjamin was without saying anything. His face was incredibly expressive. And just, I mean, just with his eyebrows and his eyes and his um, mouth, he communicated almost everything. It was um, like his own little language. So most people couldn't read it. But once you figured it out, he was very clear in his wants and his desires. Um, Obviously, some choices we just had to make for him um, because he was little and he he couldn't think in those kind of terms. Um, But the choices we made as his parents were to um, try to uphold our um, priority to to keeping him as safe as possible and to keep his life as happy as possible. And so you did everything you could for him to give him a rich, abundant life. Yes. um, That lasted three and a half years, right? Yes. And part of what we're, what we're up to in this podcast is to think about some of the, the rituals we go through, the choices we make in those immediate days after somebody dies. Um, You all, like your story is already not following any scripts, (laughs) you know, like the parenthood script is not, is out the window at this point. So tell us about the choices you made after he died. Like, what did you feel like you needed? What did you need for him in those days afterwards? um, You ended up doing a sort of an open house, like a celebration of his life a few months later. We did. Yes. Um, you did a, a balloon launch where I remember we kind of wrote messages yes. uh, to Benjamin, kind of giving a chance for everybody to say a goodbye to him. Uh, tell us about those choices. What were you what were you thinking about in those days? Because you're going through your own loss. Yes. <laughs> um, you're dealing with that your own existence has been rattled and shaken. Um, what did you need and what did that service do for you? Um, the first few weeks, of course, were just 
so full of grief that we knew that if we had a service during that time frame, that it would be focused on that grief. And we didn't feel like that would do Benjamin justice. Um, he had a short life, but it was incredibly impactful. And it was so full of joy that the last thing we wanted to do was have a service that focused on our sadness. Um, so we decided to give it some time. Um, I think we even waited about a month before we even decided on the date for the celebration of life. We always knew we wanted it to be a celebration of his life uh, and to honor him instead of mourn him um, because we wanted to uphold the goal that we had throughout his entire life, which was to focus on the joys that we were experiencing. And so it just didn't feel right to focus on the negatives after we had lost him. Um, so we decided to give it about a month and then we picked a, an open house, um, mostly because we're not very formal people. And, um, that seemed like a really easy way for people to kind of pop in and out, um, and to celebrate him how they wish to. Um, and it, I'm really happy with the choice that we made. I think that it gave us some time to grieve and to, uh, kind of pull out of that darkness a little bit so that we could really appreciate the celebration of life and really give it our all without being kind of in the trenches. I wonder, cause by doing it the way you guys did it, like people were able to show up for you, but because there was no, no formal speech, you know, no, I don't, I don't recall. I mean, I know you posted some things online of like putting it into words. Um, how do you think that that like putting his story into words, did it show up in other ways? you know, without the formality of a service, did that inclination show up in other places, like to tell stories about him or to describe him? Where else did that show up? I think that Benjamin was very much a not put into words type of being that it kind of felt natural to um, carry on his life by um, private conversations and by honoring him in other smaller ways. Uh, we're, we're a pretty introverted kind of um, private family. And so this was our way of sharing Benjamin's life um, without formalizing it. And we spent so much time sharing about his diagnosis um, and what that process looked like and about the little joys in his life that um, – we just didn't feel like we needed to wrap it up in a tidy bow. It kind of felt more natural to have this moment to honor him, um, but not call that the end of the story, um, to continue honoring him through things like a podcast or um, doing a presentation or starting a memory garden or those quiet moments with family, sharing those memories. Um, and I think a funeral or a service like that just felt a little bit too much like closing a book. Hmm. Yeah. Tell us more about the kind of, how do you keep his story going in the, on in the world, right? You said you've done some, uh, so you've been in some conversation with medical professionals and with other communities and tell us a little bit about how, what you lived through with Benjamin and his life is still gonna, that story is still going to be told. Yeah. Anthony and I are both very passionate about sharing our experience. Um, when we are welcome to, um, it's, it's, a delicate balance because we don't want to force the story on people who aren't prepared for it. Um, but when asked or invited, we're very passionate about being as open as possible. 
um, with his life, with our experience. Um, and so we, we continue to accept any opportunity like that or seek any out. Um, we're still a little bit involved in the cocaine syndrome, um, society, um, and just kind of step in and volunteer when we can. Um, and, and as far as within our own personal life, um, we have his things still scattered about the house and, um, Anthony built a bench and we have it placed, uh, back on our property a bit with a maple tree from our, our old house, um, a sapling from around when he passed, um, that we have growing next to, next to the benches, sort of a little quiet spot to go to, uh, to reflect. Yeah. There's something about trees specifically. I feel like I remember when my grandma died, my mom, that was one of the first things she did was to go buy a tree. And I have a few friends who that's been, it's almost like a primal instinct. Just about. To yeah. like see something grow. I don't know. There's there's something about making something that lasts when we're confronted with yes, absolutely. our, our temporariness. Trees are so long living that I think it's it's just very satisfying to see yeah. a tree in your loved one's memory continue to thrive and grow over the years. Yeah. It's almost like a, they were here kind of a statement. Yes. Um, I want to go back to just the, you talked about the delicateness of talking about Benjamin and cause it wasn't, it's not all joy, right? You had to work right. hard to focus on joy, but I do want to talk about that hard part of, of just talking about him. It's a very, uh, delicate learning process. Um, we, as I said, we were young parents, um, so not very many of our friends were married or had children, um, which kind of set, set a bit of distance, unfortunately, uh, just because, I mean, how do you even fathom losing a child um, if, you've, if you've not even considered having children yet? And um, it's such a rare thing to happen. Um, that it was challenging to find people of our age. Um, yeah, they don't even have a narrative for that. They don't. Like cancer it, is something that they just, might at least know a little bit about or something more typical, but mm -hmm. this is and something they've never heard of. Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you comfort a friend who's gone through something that you, you can't even imagine? Uh, you, you just don't have the script or the, the words mm -hmm. or the know-how to even be helpful. Um, and I think it's, it's a very overwhelming experience. Um, and then it was very hard out and about, I think is the hardest um, because people love to start small talk. And even at the grocery, you know, our cashier will be, how many kids do you have? And I, I can't say two. That's right. I, I can't do that. I have three children and I, I could never, even if it would be more convenient, I could never just pretend that my son never existed. That's dishonoring him. Um, so I say three, um, most of the time small talk can stay vague enough that it doesn't really get into that. Um, I, I don't have to be like, I have three children and one of them is dead. Um, it, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it just, yeah. we just move on. Um, but sometimes, you know, they'll be like, Oh, well, where, where's your brother? And, and, you know, it's, it's a little uncomfortable w weirdly because it's, it kind of puts me in the position to soothe the person who asked the question, uh, cause they weren't expecting that answer and right. their immediate 
response is uh, to backpedal. They they don't they didn't know what they were walking into, and they want to get out of it as fast as possible. Uh, so I've learned over the years now to answer the question um, and provide an out so that we can change the topic comfortably. Mm-hmm. Um, so that seems to work with with people you you don't need to talk to frequently. Um, and then it is challenging to find other mom friends, though, because um, I think it's incredibly uncomfortable for other moms and dads to be around parents who have lost a child because they don't they don't want to think about that as a possibility. Right. Um, and so early on, I remember, you know, trying to break that story to to prospective new friends and um, just seeing seeing them kind of shut down when when that topic was broached and um, trying to get away. <laughs> sure. Um, so it it's it's taken some learning to know how to to divulge that information. And I never expected the um, the work to be on the end of the person who has experienced the loss. Right. It's almost like you have to learn a whole new skill. In addition to like learning the skill of navigating a doctor's office. Yes. You have to learn how to navigate conversation about your own life. Yes. And you have to like learn the skills of reading a person if, if they're equipped correct. for the truth or not. And providing those subtle outs, it's it's like an entirely new social skill. And there were definitely some stumbling uh, occurring in the beginning as we tried to figure out how to to navigate that conversation. But we've gotten better at uh, providing those outs so that people can kind of scramble yeah. out of that conversation if they don't want to be there. Yeah. Well, and it is a true thing, too, to just realize how <laughs> this is going to sound so negative, but just how selfish we are that our own comfort is often our first thing, right? So they're not thinking, I'm sure you've maybe met a few people whose first thought is to show you compassion. Yes. Maybe, yes. <laughs> maybe a few of Absolutely, them. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. But, but yeah, a lot of people, their discomfort trumps maybe any kind of compassion they might show you. Yeah. I think, I think it's kind of a dual layered thing. One, their brain subconsciously is immediately like abort you need to get out of this conversation this is uncomfortable I don't want to think about this right and then the second part is that they they genuinely want to say something helpful but they have no idea what words to say that won't be hurtful Mm -hmm. um that will be you know uplifting but also not fake and so you can kind of see them trying to figure out well if I say I'm so sorry. Is is that okay? Or should I start my own story? Or y- you can just see I'm scrambling to find the social script uh, to apply to this situation because I think it's just so out of out of the normal conversation. Normally, it's you know I lost my grandma, and then you can say I'm so sorry. I hope she lived a long, healthy life. And when you lose your three year old, that's generally not a particularly great way to respond to that uh, statement. So they don't have anything to kind of blurt out in the moment. Yeah. That is uncomfortable. Yeah. That makes total sense to me. I wonder, um, I wonder if you've thought about 
I'm sure you have, because I think you're a thoughtful person. Like what, how will you keep Benjamin's story going? Not just like in the world and maybe to serve the world, but in your family, like when you talk to Natalie and Amelia about their brother, you know, what do you, how do you, have you thought about ways you're going to keep it alive, even just for them that like this person existed? Yeah. So they were uh, 11 months old when Benjamin passed. So we have a lot of photos of the three of them together, Mm -hmm. which are always on display throughout the house. Um, And we share all kinds of stories with the girls about Benjamin. Um, We keep it lighthearted. And our goal is to let them drive the conversation. Um, We have already had to lightly broach on the topic because they are aware of the concept of death. And so we needed to explain that they do not need to be afraid of dying like Benjamin did because that was a very real fear of theirs. Mm. Um, So we kept it as vague as possible. Um, And as they grow older and they come to us with questions, we will answer them. Um, But the goal is to not overburden them with this grief that we are experiencing uh, and to let them learn about Benjamin in their own time. And we very much are the opposite with all the happy moments. You know, we'll, we'll kind of inject those throughout the day or tell a funny story or say, you know, Benjamin really liked this song or, um, do you want to hold Benjamin stuffy? Or, you know, he's, he's involved quite a bit. Um, but we, we, we try to give them that space because, we're here to tell them Benjamin's story when they're ready, but we also don't want them to feel like they're in the shadow of Benjamin's life because their lives are very important too. And we love them very much. And we want to focus on what the life that they're living and their hopes and dreams as well. That has you're saying that that sounds beautiful, but also uh, I would think difficult. Like, do you ever find your own grief mixing in that like even coming across a stuffed animal that he responded to, or do you ever find yourself like, I guess I'm just wondering how is your own grief doing these days? Cause we're, what are we a few years out? Yeah. Not that long. Mm-hmm. How is your own grief doing? And does it ever surprise you in those moments? Yeah. So the, the, the first few months up to a year were extraordinarily challenging. Um, you know, I would find his little sock in the couch or something like that. And it would start waves all over again. Um, as some of the surprises have disappeared, it's, it's a little more predictable. Um, we're very open with each other, my husband and I, and also with the girls when we're having a difficult day and they've seen us grieve. Um, we try to keep the, the heavy grief to ourselves and not scare them, but they understand that there's been a loss and that it's okay to be sad and to, to feel that. Um, but I think that as time goes on, you know, it's never just going to go away, but it becomes more predictable. So, you know, there's certain days that we know are going to be challenging, um, or you can just kind of tell where your mind frame is and be like, well, this seems like it's going to be a challenging day. And, you know, those just happen, but they do happen less, uh, significantly less frequently Um, and we, Benjamin's passing was not, 
as we had expected it. So it was very traumatic for us. Um, and we were both alone at home with him for his passing. So there's a lot of uh, PTSD that we're working through as well in therapy. Um, and as that is being addressed and treated, it, the grieving process is becoming much more bearable. Uh, so it's a lot of hard work. But um, I think people think that grief is linear. And it's really um, quite a roller coaster. You know, you, you think you're getting better and then you have some really bad days and then you get better some more and then you take a couple steps back and it's kind of all over the place. Sure. Well, yeah. And, you know, I have some experience with that PTSD feeling too. And it is, it just magnifies everything. Yes. Um, and yeah, you had a lot, a lot to <laughs> recover from and to process and um, I wonder, I have one last question, but is there anything else that you just would want the world to know about Benjamin if or, or if you hand this to somebody who's a friend, just some, or if you keep this for, and 10 years later, you get, dig it out to listen to, is there anything you just want to say out loud about Benjamin and his life? Whenever we're asked about Benjamin, we always just love talking about the amazing perspective on life that he had and just how incredibly inspiring he was. I think it's hard for people to believe because he was only three and a half when he passed and he couldn't talk, but it really changed Anthony and I's life um, and made us more compassionate, more patient, uh, more grateful, and more positive. And you wouldn't expect that from from the very challenging life that Benjamin lived, but he just was such a shining light in our lives, and um, it just blows me away how how much of an impression he left on anyone who met him. Yeah, it's it's probably not universally true, but I do think so many times it's true that the the suffering person leads us. Yes, um, that they sometimes can show us the way through the thing that we find ourselves in the middle of if we love them. Um, that that sometimes they are the the ones who should be leading uh, the way through even when they're a child, right? I mean, there's times when they can, there's a wisdom they have in their body that we don't have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's natural for people to want to fight that a little bit um, because they may see that as a person giving up or um, struggling. But I think that it's actually an inner peace that we should listen to and let them guide us because it's their life that is being lived and experienced. And to kind of let go of the the fighting, yes, and um, to embrace how they would like to live their life. The the last question uh, I'm going to ask everybody is just you know since we're talking about the words we say, the kind of the the last stories that we tell about people. Have you ever thought about what you want people to say about you eventually, in retrospect? And then I wonder, especially since we've talked about this, if there's anything on that, like maybe list of four or five things you hope people say about you that is there because of Benjamin. Does that make sense? I think almost all of them are, honestly. As I had said earlier, Benjamin changed my list of priorities in life. I, I can't say that I was, you know, crazy career driven or, or anything like that, but 
he magnified that, uh, the importance of uh, focusing on who you are as a person and how you're experiencing your life. So I hope down, down the road uh, when people talk about me um, that it's, it's all traits that are based on compassion and patience and a kind heart and um, true to herself. Um, instead of, well, she had a huge house or, um, you know, achieved this, uh, this paycheck. I, I hope that it's, um, not based on achievements or things I've acquired or, um, certifications. I hope it's based on who I was as a person and that it was true to myself and compassionate and patient. One of the striking things about hearing Leslie's story, if you were able to listen to our episode with my friend Sarah, who also lost a child, it's just hearing how their different personalities are reflected in what they needed mm-hmm. um, through um, parenting their children and through grief. That that Sarah's this big feeler, that she she needed ways to express that. And then you have Leslie, who's so thoughtful. Yeah, so to be with each other means understanding what a person needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they might need, some people need words of comfort, some people just need presence, uh, some people might need practical help. And so tailoring our witness to different people, uh, I've just been thinking about that a lot as we listen in on these conversations, how yeah. much it shows up in in our grief. It also helps emphasize that, yeah, the withness, the important part is being with each other. And in doing that, that means that it's a reciprocal relationship where you see somebody as an individual rather than one size fits all of um, sort of forcing your presence upon them in whatever way that you understand and know yourself. Yeah. Yeah, And even not thinking like, what would I want? Mm -hmm. Because that might lead you down some routes and it might, especially if you share a lot in common with that person, but it might also lead you away from what they need. Mm-hmm. And so just making sure we give that thought. I hope uh, maybe at the end of today, if you just need to to make today count, uh, maybe just listen to an Elvis song. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did track down whether or not we could play music because I thought it would be fun to play meaningful songs at the end of every, every episode. But uh, we were just playing my sister's music in between because I love hearing her strum the guitar. But maybe when you um, hit stop on this, maybe you go track down Blue Suede Shoes. And just give it a spin uh, in honor of the life of Benjamin. <laughs>